0: think it's easy for us now, looking back 45 years, you know, oh yes, of course we were going to get a wilderness bill passed, but it was never assured that it could have been killed at dozens of points of time.
1: Welcome to Big Red Canoe, the podcast from Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, where we introduce you to captivating people and intriguing stories from America's treasured wilderness. I'm Dave Meyer. Grab a paddle and hop on in. Today we're going to take a look back in Boundary Waters history and feature a recent conversation we had with some of the people who fought to protect the Boundary Waters in the 1970s resulting in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Act of 1978. By this point, the Boundary Waters had been included in the National Wilderness Preservation System in 1964, but it was becoming clear that with extensive exceptions for logging and motorboat use, that the Boundary Waters was in many ways a wilderness in name only. And our Executive Director, Chris Knopp, sat down with three of the individuals who created Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness and fought for the passage of the 1978 Act, signed into law by President Jimmy Carter. When I listen to these stories, I'm struck by how people who share a belief and a love for a place like the Boundary Waters can get together to make change, and we at Friends of the Boundary Waters are carrying that work forward now, and we never forget that we couldn't do it without your help, working side-by-side, sharing the Boundary Waters with others, the next generation, and also financially. And this is my plug before we jump into this conversation. Anytime is a great time to support the Friends... And when this podcast drops in November, it'll be the week of Give to the Max, when people from across Minnesota and across the country come together to support causes that matter. We hope that you will support Friends of the Boundary Waters. We've got $176,000 in matching gifts thanks to other generous supporters, which is huge. So when you give, that'll effectively double your gift and make it go that much further. So please go to our website, friends-bwca.org and make a gift to help continue the work of these people who worked so hard to make the Boundary Waters the wilderness that it is today. And thank you for being a part of it. Now here's Chris.
2: Thank you for joining us. I'm Chris Knopp, the Executive Director of Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. And we are celebrating and reflecting on the 45th anniversary of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Act of 1978. That was passed 45 years ago on October 21st, 1978. And so I am so excited that we have Chuck Dayton, Janet Green, and Kevin Presholt, three of the individuals that helped pass the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Act of 1978 and helped found our organization, Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Chuck Dayton is a, a longtime environmental attorney In addition to founding the Friends, he also founded the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, and he was uh, a a path-breaking litigator and also um, a lobbyist at the legislature and and led to uh, the passage of the foundational environmental laws that we have in Minnesota, including the Minnesota Environmental Rights Act. Janet Green is a is one of Minnesota's leading ornithologists. In addition to being a founding member of Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, she's been very active in the Audubon Society over the years and was profiled in the Conservation Volunteer Magazine that many of you get from the Minnesota DNR. And and she is a a real champion for outdoor protection in the wilderness and, and, and being a leading ornithologist. And she's Finishing up another update on Minnesota Ornithology book that will be in print in the in the upcoming uh, months here, hopefully. And uh, Kevin Preshald is one of my predecessors. He was an, an executive director of Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Is a college student from Iowa, became involved in the founding of the Friends, and is is now with uh, Wilderness Watch that works on wilderness protection nationally here. And so we now have this this beautiful over a million acre wilderness area along the Canadian border in Northeast Minnesota. But it did not happen by accident. It was through the involvement of Chuck, Jan and Kevin here and so many others. And we're going to find all the work that it took to to, to make that happen. And so to uh, kick this off here, I, I'd like to, uh, Jan and Kevin to uh, talk about that period before we had the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Act you know, the efforts that began in the early 20th century and continued for, for decades. So, so Jan, if you would please kick it off with that sort of foundational work that led to the passage of the 78 Act.
3: Okay. Well, I don't quite go back that far, but I'm almost 90. But so it started in the early 1900s. 1909, 1902 were dates where the Forest Service. Came into play in understanding what they had there as the ecological importance of the wild Waters area, which was part of the Superior National Forest and it was run by foresters. So we helped forward a bill that took the you know, common point of view. Of foresters, which was you cut the wood and trying to get away from that to the ecological importance of the boundary waters, which was uh, part of our mentor, Bud Heinzelman's uh, life's work.
0: As time went on after the establishment of the Superior. In- National Forest in 1909, there were a number of of efforts uh, to try to protect the area. That included, uh, back in the 1920s, uh, an, an effort to stop uh, an ambitious road-building plan uh, that would have built roads across what's now the heart of the Boundary Waters. That, <clears throat> that led to the first administrative wilderness designation uh, in 1926. Uh, by the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, William Jardine. Uh, but that did not solve it. There were problems uh, that continued, and, and it led to efforts by early conservationists to to pass uh, the Shipstead-Newton-Nolan Act in 1930 uh, that prevented the uh, dam construction and the alteration of the natural water levels. Uh, in 1948, the Thigh-Blatnick Act that provided money to the Forest Service to buy in holdings for the first time. In 1949, Harry Truman signed an executive order establishing an unprecedented airspace above what's now the boundary waters where float planes could not fly over and land. And still there were there were continuing problems up, up until the 1950s. At that time, the national conservation movement began trying to pass a wilderness bill through Congress, starting in 1956, when the, the primary Senate sponsor was Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey. Hubert got lots of pushback, including from the Forest Service. The chief testified, saying he didn't want to end logging in the Boundary Waters, and local uh, residents didn't want any curtailment of motorboat use in the Boundary Waters. Humphrey fashioned a compromise after getting hammered on on those that became Section Four D Five of the 1964 Wilderness Act, where it finally passed, and that singled out the Boundary Waters for allowing continued motorboat use and continued logging in the Boundary Waters. So it was extremely fortunate that we could get the Boundary Waters included in the new National Wilderness Preservation System, but. Uh, it it sort of created this uh, situation where the Boundary Waters was a wilderness in name, but not in management.
3: Which is a distinction that people have to bear in mind to look at what happened subsequently. Well, in 1972,
4: I had become a lawyer for the Minnesota Public Interest Research Group. It actually was the only place in Minnesota where it was popular possible to be uh, a white hat environmental lawyer and make a salary which wasn't very much and and one of our staff people on a trip to the boundary waters discovered that there was salvage logging going on in an area where there had been a blowdown, and came back and talked about it and we started to look into logging in the boundary waters canoe area And we started meeting with the Forest Service and finding out that there were actually 15 active sales in the Boundary Waters. And we tried to persuade them that uh, logging was a bad idea, which, of course, we were unable to do. And so we decided that we were going to start a lawsuit. And so I had to have expert witnesses. And I went to see Herb Wright at the University of Minnesota, and he sent me to see Bud Heinzelman. And Heinzelmann, as it turned out, became the real hero of the nineteen seventy eight act he was working for the Forest Service, and he said I could come over to his house at night and talk to him about it and He laid out all of his maps on the table because he had been he had been for some time studying logging in the boundary waters and documenting the fire history of the boundary waters by coring thousands and thousands of trees all throughout this huge area. And he told that story of how fire is really the way that the forest gets renewed. And he was inside the Forest Service talking as an advocate for stopping logging, but he couldn't go public on that really because he was a, because of was Forest Service employee and it would be against the Forest Service policy. So I told him I wanted to be a witness. And he said, I can't, I'm with the Forest Service. And I said, oh, I'm gonna subpoena you. So I did, and he shows up in court with his map tubes and his slideshow. And I put him on a witness stand and he testified for about three hours. And uh, Judge Lord fell in love with him and understood what he was saying. Judge Lord happened to be from the Iron Range, so he knew these issues well and he ruled in favor of us and ordered an environmental impact statement on the existing sales under the newly adopted national environmental policy act the forest service did the environmental impact statement but they but they decided to continue with their logging and as kevin as Kevin pointed out, logging wasn't the only issue. There was the issue of motor boating as well, and some other issues like restoration of old dams and and that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, and you've got to understand that these issues have been there since 1900s, and they're really well covered in this book, which I can't seem to hold straight. But you, you got, got it. Okay. and and also it's the saving wilderness. Uh, Ecosystems by Newell Cyril, and then Kevin's classic book *Trouble Waters*, and it covers what we're talking about now, and it also gives you a good idea of what happens in the Congress when the Congress functions like the Congress is supposed to do, which
2: is forgotten right now. Well, yeah, that, that's really fascinating. You know, a, a great point that you're making, Jan, where you have a, a, a Congress functioning well and able to pass legislation that has bipartisan support. And, and when I hear the three of you talking here, really, you have three different types of a, actions interplaying. You have litigation, the, the the lawsuit that you were talking about, Chuck. And then we have administrative actions that, that Kevin, you were talking about kind of leading up to it. And then we have this legislative effort too. So we have these 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 different uh, tools of advocacy that you're you're using to 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 protect the the wilderness here. And so after so we had the, the after the sixty four Act that was sort of as you said wilderness Act in, in name only. Jan, I want want you to talk about Bud Heinzelman a little bit more and how. How he was really dealing with a different culture at the Forest Service and and some of the battles that he had to deal with professionally and personally there. Yes. I've been involved
3: with forest uh, people professionally as friends actually too. I live in Dumont, but I'm part of the 8th Congressional District, which was at this time where we're talking about was... The congressperson was Jim Overstar, who was a ranger, but not in the way you look at rangers now. Uh, and he was not part of the what I sometimes call the mafia of the Turkish clan, but he was his own person and oh. was eager to make a
2: mark the legislation and thank 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 you jan so chuck you had the 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 victory with the emberg b butts lawsuit that that judge miles lord was part of and it went up to the a circuit and we had this environmental impact statement but but it but it wasn't it, it was incomplete so you had to you developed a strategy session following that litigation so tell us tell us what you were working on as part of that strategy session along with everyone else here well,
4: we, we actually, after the first lawsuit and the management plan, we brought a second lawsuit arguing that the act itself did not allow logging in the contiguous areas of virgin forest, and we lost on that to the Eighth Circuit. And then the Forest Service came out with this management plan uh, deciding to continue with the logging, and so we had no choice but to try to, to go to Congress. And we had a strategy meeting, which started at Bud and Fran's house on a lake near Ely. And then we went out to, uh, to Sig Olson's Listening Point. Sig came out and talked with us. And the strategy that was developed there was, two, was twofold. First, Sig and Bud would meet with Blotnick and try to convince him to do an amendment to the, to the Wilderness Act to ban logging. And and then the second thing was to file an administrative appeal from the decisions in the administrative plan, in the management plan, which included motorboating, logging, old dams, and and motorboating, and snowmobiling. We uh, on the first effort to pass a bill as Blatnick's swan song. Bud Heinzelman and Bill Rahm and I went out and lobbied on that, and Don Fraser took the bill. But Blotnick first agreed to do it, but I think Oberstar got the timber people to have dinner with him and talk him out of it. Which it turned out to be a good thing because it was kind of done without a lot of without a lot of public knowledge and it would not have been a good way to pass a law. And as it turned out, what we ended up with had a lot more in it than just than just logging. So the administrative appeal of all the decisions in the management plan, we lost on everything except for snowmobiling. And the snowmobiling issue was decided by the chief of the Forest Service, John McGuire, who said, I don't think there should be snowmobiles in a wilderness area. And that was affirmed by Earl Butts, who was the, the head of the agriculture department. And that created an immediate uproar turmoil in the Ely area. People were stopping cars, they were blocking entry points. It was just a mess and as a result of that uproar, James Oberstar decided to introduce a bill which would which would in his mind be a compromise and perhaps Jan or or Kevin would like to talk about that. Well, he was
3: not a neophyte, for sure when he was elected. He had been John Blatnick's aide for about 12 years. and But politics and the Iron Range in Northern Minnesota is not easy to unravel. And he had his bill and he brought it to... The people who were important in this issue in October of 1975, and I was brought in as one of the global environmentalists, and he also had done this to the other major interests, but he didn't want to push something right in people's faces without some understanding what was his point of view? And he had created a bill that bifurcated the wilderness into a wilderness pure, didn't call it that, but it was without logging and motors. And then environmental recreation area, which was the heart of the Boundary Waters, where most of the big lakes are. And where were around the motor and snowmobiling activity at first. And for some reason, snowmobiles were so close to their sense of who they were and how they wanted to access the wilderness. And it, it, me, as an environmentalist with an Audubon background, had a meeting in Grand Marais in the middle of the winter, it gets February 76, and we were pillared by the locals. We'd been meeting there for decades. It was a meeting with bird watchers from Canada and birdwatchers from the uh, United States, and they were uh, suddenly enmeshed in this argument about how to manage the boundary waters and we were never, this was an organization called the Minnesota Ornithologists Union, and we were never welcomed in Grand Marais from that point on.
4: So after, after Oberstar introduced his bill, we recognized, though the small group had been working on this, we recognized that we were going to have to have a bill in Congress to counter Oberstar's bill, to have something to rally around and jan and bud Heinzelman and i went to talk to don fraser and asked him if he would sponsor such a bill turns out fraser loved the boundary waters had been on his honeymoon there went there every year and he agreed to sponsor our pure wilderness bill it, it, it may have cost him uh, the nomination for senate because uh, he lost the he lost the primary by 3000 votes but anyway he took it on I think knowing the risks, and and that began the fight in Congress to get the bill passed. And Heiselman, who had been working for the Forest Service, retired early at age sixty-three, and basically spent the ne- the part of the next, the better part of the next two or three years in Washington, living in Washington, lobbying for this bill. As an unpaid volunteer.
0: So at about the same time that uh, Don Fraser agreed to introduce the Pure Wilderness Bill, the environmental community had a big meeting at Hinkley, midway between Duluth and the Twin Cities, and decided to form the Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness as a kind of a, a new organization, really more of a coalition at that time. Of all of the people interested in protecting the Boundary Waters as wilderness character, and Bud was selected as the the unpaid chair of the Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness,
3: and he was a magnificent leader. You could not have meetings with Bud without maps, and that included not only the meetings we had as an you know, activist group, but also in the Congress, and he was managed to shepherd these people who came into the issue as environmentalists with all different kinds of organizational basis and managed to talk to each other. And if they didn't, they just drifted off. And that was one interesting part of how we proceeded. And we met at first at Toby's, Hinkley, which is halfway, and um, and then at in Bud's living room, I remember some of the other meetings. Yeah, know. going back to that meeting at at
4: Hinkley, I mean, we decided to incorporate the nonprofit corporation, and and we decided to file a a Freedom of Information Act request for all the names of people who had led. Paddle only boundary waters, canoe trips in the boundary waters, and he needed a permit for that. By the way, so, and it because, was they, because the names were were collected on permits when you signed up for your permit, so there were about thirty thousand names in that bunch. And Jan, you should tell the story of collecting those names.
3: Well, I can. My memory goes back to. Where we were sitting in the Forest Service building in the Duluth Air uh, Government Office building. And their staff would wheel in loads of permits. And I and Kevin, I mean, and, and Dan Engstrom had organized. I organized school teachers who had been in Audubon and Dan organized young guys who were part of his group and they, Dan wrote or why well, know one of my teachers brought a typewriter, but we went on and on and that was a Herculean activity, but absolutely crucial. And if one hadn't had that bright idea, I don't know where we would be. And that list formed kind of the the the
0: the big mailing list for the very first Friends publication and mailing that, that came out in the spring of 1976 that really laid out as a, as a very nicely done booklet uh, with lots of photos, and it really laid out the the threats facing the boundary waters and the need to
3: to uh support and pass the Fraser bill. Yes. A little sign outside of that. There was also a poster that was created by Jerry Birbuckle, who was a well-known photographer at that time, and it had a message of, take one last look before it vanishes, with a beautiful scene and a red canoe in the foreground. Now, I cannot locate, I don't, I keep everything, uh, unfortunately, but I cannot locate a copy of that Poster. So, he of our audience today as a fan on that poster. Uh, it's a treasure of um, how uh, visuals can emotionally pull people. Into- well, that poster was great because
4: it would it was it was passed out by the people who were doing the lobbying in Washington to Congress people, and you'd go to a Congressperson's office, and sometimes you'd see that poster. On the wall, and but as the Fraser had his bill introduced, and as a result of this mailing and the formation of a nationwide instant nationwide organization, by the way, that was my idea. I take credit for that. I think, yes, <laughs> I think because I, think I often say it was the third best idea I ever had after the two women that I married. But uh, we started lobbying. In Washington, Heisselman leading leading the the charge along with Dan, Ingstrom and a whole oh. group of other of other folks, who who got out there and started lobbying on behalf of, on behalf of this bill, and Kevin, maybe you can help me out here, but there were a lot of people involved with that.
3: Yeah, now
0: and we if, had,
2: if and you, had you know that. on on that point, you we, would you. I want to interject for a moment and kind of tease something up for you that that what you've done is you created a, a movement here with a, with a, a lot of people. So so may, maybe uh, Kevin, you want to talk about some of the other individuals that were in, involved in, and and you know identify them by name. You know some of the yeah. some of the folks because it was a, a, sort of a team effort, a, a movement that was created here.
0: It was definitely a, a team movement and lots and lots of people involved from all across the country. You know, we had Dan Engstrom as the Northern Vice Chair of the Friends uh, based out of Duluth. We had Bill Cunningham um, and then Erica Sitz as the Southern Vice Chairs of the Friends in the Twin Cities. We had Isaac Wong League members like Wes Libby and Dave Zetner from Duluth uh, who were involved. We, we had... Uh, just all kinds of people.
2: Kevin, you had a number of lawyers involved in addition to, to Chuck, right? You had oh yes, uh, as a, the Great Plan Moody firm. You had Flint De- and Steve, and Steve, oh, Steve and, Snyder. and
0: Yep. Um, uh, we had old people from across the country, Terry and Paulette Royt from the state of Virginia, who formed like they called it the East Coast Advocates for the Boundary Waters. And they did a lot of lobbying on the states of the East Coast. Paul Nachman from Illinois, who helped organize the state of Illinois for the the campaign. I can add a few. You ever knew yourself from
3: Iowa? Yes, Iowa. To control.
4: Yes. And Jonathan Ela and Trish Record from the Sierra Club and Brock Evans from the National Sierra Club and Roger Rahm. And I especially want to mention Rip Rapson, who was Fraser's chief aide on this and really was at the center of everything that was happening in Congress throughout the whole, the whole time.
0: Yeah. I, I remember the, the friends had a strategy session. I think it was in the spring uh, of 77 at uh, Elm Creek uh, Nature Reserve in the Northern Metro area. And I drove up from Iowa for that. Rip came from, from Washington, D.C., Bill McGee was there, old Bill McGee, who had been fighting for wilderness for decades, and it was a real strategy session for kind of firing up the grassroots and and mar- marking out kind of the lobbying strategy session going forward. I should
4: also point out, you know, that there was a strong opposition to this bill, and they were well organized. We were not playing tennis with the net down. Uh, <laughs> There was a very strong and 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 very energetic group called was it conservationists with common sense,
0: no, uh, that Boundary Waters Conservation Alliance.
4: Boundary Waters, okay, yes, yeah. uh, in Ely, but you know they were out there to, doing the same lobbying that we were, so it was it, it,
3: <laughs> it was it was a battle. I think Kimber probably motivated them more than motors. but motors were. Motivation, but the local people in um, out of hearing. So,
4: I think motors were the I think motors were the primary motivation for our side as well, because you know the logging was there, but it wasn't visible most of the time. So, in any event, we began to have hearings in in Washington before Phil Burton's committee in July of nineteen. 19- 77. And and Burton uh, Burton was the chair of that of that, uh, Natural Resources Committee. Have we talked about Phil Burton at all? Uh, Burton. Not yet. Burton? <laughs> Burton was a character. Very bright, very well-liked congressman. He almost beat Tip O'Neill for the Speaker of the House and uh, was the head of this subcommittee. And uh, I think it was Jan who said that he began to receive letters from, from people from all over the country about this boundary waters that he'd never heard of, and as many did, he fell in love with Bud Heiselman. And so Heiselman would bring his maps and set them out on the floor of Burton's office, and off, and Burton would sit there with a glass of vodka and his shoes off, and point point at the maps with his toes, and say, "Tell me about this Saginaga." <laughs> but burton burton had many ideas to he, he incidentally was the predecessor of nancy pelosi from san francisco yes <laughs> he he had many ideas that that helped to soften the impact of the bill locally we made more timber available outside the boundary waters for cutting by the logging companies there were some grants available to local authorities to try to promote tourism there was an opportunity for people who had resorts on lakes that were close to the boundary waters to require the government to buy out their resorts at a price set by a local jury so he 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 thought he thought more broadly than just banning than banning things
0: and he was an amazing guy he he was a close friend of don frasers as well And I know Don had told me at one point when we interviewed him for the book that Burton felt like Burton would do the dirty work, the hard, dirty work, and try to protect Don politically because Don began to consider running for the U.S. Senate seat that had been vacated when Hubert Humphrey died and then filled with Muriel Humphrey. And so that led Burton to draft the the young... Bruce Vento, who was still a freshman in Congress, to produce a committee compromise bill called the Burton-Vento Bill that was released in, in March of 1978.
2: Yeah, Kevin, so why did Phil Burton care about it? He's from California. He's in line to become speaker, which he just missed here. How did Phil Burton become involved in, uh, uh, why, why did a why did congressman from California care about it?
0: Burton was not a wilderness uh, visitor himself. Uh, he once quipped that his idea of a wilderness experience uh, in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area in the San Francisco area was walking from his car to the drinking fountain. Yeah. Uh, but he believed in it. He understood it. Um, and and he, was, he was
3: captivated by Bud, as so yeah. many of us uh, elsewhere. Something about Bud purity. As a scientist and a lover of the woods, captivated Burton. And I think, unfortunately, the environmental movement has moved away from thinking of these wilderness values as something that nature provides to the great outdoors, which is recreation. And I think that's a challenge for all of us in the future to try to get back to the core of what is wilderness. So the bill the bill actually passed
4: the House in June of nineteen seventy eight and was it was by a wide margin and over the objection of of Oberstar and Al and but by a pretty resounding margin because of our national support that had been built up by the friends and it went then of course it went to the 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 senate
2: did al kind try to put a temporary hold on the bill and and do you rec- is there a backstory on on his involvement maybe you want to talk about al or for just a moment here
0: kevin yeah al Kwee was really respected in the house uh, he had been there for a long time he had been a co-sponsor of the 1964 wilderness act but by the time we got to 1978 al was also running for governor of minnesota and looking to broaden his his base and his support, particularly in northeastern Minnesota, I don't think he put a hold on the bill at House passage. I think he may have later on in the process, but but House members didn't have the ability to to do long term holds like the Senate members can.
3: Now somebody has asked, I'm reading it the bottom of the screen that what our background, the three of us was. With the wilderness. And I can say that I went there with my husband, who's a geologist, back in you know, 1959. And we walked the trail from Land's End on the Gunflin Trail to what we hoped was the highest point in Minnesota, of which the Forest Service had told us was. And when we got there, and I climbed a tree, and you could see that we were outclassed by South Other Peak, which now you all know as um, the highest point in Minnesota. And so I've been on canoe trips and with my family and friends, and I know that both Kevin and Chuck are embedded in the wilderness experience from their. Activities.
4: Yeah, I my my family in 1957 started a canoe outfitting base out of a lake near Ely, and so I got to guide canoe trips for for many years.
0: And and I was a latecomer compared to Jan and Chuck, but I started guiding canoe trips in the Boundary Waters starting in 1974, and going on for about ten years after that. And so I was I was leading trips both before, during, and after. The time of of this congressional fight to pass the seventy eight law. If you want to get through the chronology here, uh, in
4: the in, when the bill went to the Senate, Wendy Anderson had appointed himself as a as a senator after Humphrey, and he had the problem that all statewide Minnesota politicians have, is that uh, the environmentalists in the Twin Cities want wilderness and the and the locals up north don't, and they're all Democrats. And it's never been that simple. Well, well no, it's not that simple, but it's a, it was a problem. So he at first was not supportive of the bill. And, and Kevin, you can talk about Bud's reaction to that and how the Senate Resources Committee managed to take a trip.
0: Yeah. During the, the, the House sub between the House subcommittee and full committee markups in the spring of seventy eight, Wendy had gone to a big event that the Boundary Waters Conservation Alliance had sponsored in in Virginia, Minnesota, and he had been mostly neutral publicly on on the fate of the Boundary Waters bill, but he got up in front of this big crowd and and basically said, I oppose the Fraser bill, I oppose the Burton Vento bill, I'll never let a bill pass that you people up here won't like. And that was a, a huge movement away from our position. And our advisors, including a guy named Dick Conlon, who was the head of the Democratic Study Group, advised us to really issue a strong statement. And, and we ended up doing that in Bud's name and it included the quotes about how Wendy had stuck a knife in the back of the Boundary Waters bill. So after the House passage of the bill the the bill was in Wendy's court, essentially, and he had introduced his version of the Boundary Waters bill uh, in June of 78, which was really bad from a wilderness standpoint. Uh, but then either he, I, I, I'm not sure if it was under his uh, push, or Senator Jim Aberesk from South Dakota decided to arrange a, a, a Senate field trip to Ely and Seagull Lake at the end of the Gunflint Trail to see the area for themselves. And I, Chuck and Jan, I think you were both there. I was not. I think I was leading trips at the time. So
3: Yes, I, I was on the trip. And as I mentioned, I was riding in the cab of a truck on what was called the Four Mile portage at that time with Everest. And he wanted us to make the local understanding. He felt so, that the Congress at his level shouldn't be telling people that this piece of land will do this and this piece of land will do that. And so we all at the end ended up in the basement of the old house or I, I don't know, Chuck, what was it? The basement? After we, we, on this field trip,
4: The members of the Senate Natural Resources Committee were there, and we also went to Basswood Lake, went out in a motorboat, and then we flew over to Seagull, talked to people there. They had a picnic, flew back to Ely, and the entire committee met in the courthouse of Ely, Minnesota, and, and and the members of the Senate Natural Resources Committee sat in the jury box. And they heard testimony from both sides and Aberesque uh, called Wendy aside. And then he came back and he said, you know, there are a thousand lakes here. And how is uh, Dale Bumpers from Arkansas going to figure out which lakes should have motors and which lakes should not? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make my chief staff person available and each side Designate the negotiator, and we're going to lock them in a room until they come up with a compromise, and that's what happened. And uh, a young lawyer from Ely, Ron Walls, represented the pro motorboat side, and I was representing the pure wilderness side, and we negotiated in the in the basement of the Senate office building, where I was told the Senate wives used to roll bandages for soldiers in the civil war and there for two days and they sent scoop jackson who was the then the majority leader come down to tell us how important it was to reach a compromise on this and we we still hadn't made much progress until the night of the after the second day when basswood lake which had been the the nut that we just could not crack in terms of deciding whether it's going to have motors or not. We said, let's look at Basswood Lake as uh, seven different lakes. And Basswood is a big lake. It can be pretty rough for canoeists. It was the lake that the fishermen liked the best. And once we decided what to do with Basswood Lake, which was to carve it up into motors and non-motors, we were able to negotiate all the rest of the all the rest of the lakes. Um, we stayed up all night. Yeah, we certainly did. And uh, Jan was there. Kevin was there. My first wife Kathy was there. Rip Rapson was there. And it was and Bud was Bud was not happy with the idea of a
3: compromise. I'll tell you, he, he was devastated. And yeah, what yeah. memories, Bud? After it was all over, we had left with an rest of the night, sitting with him and Fran on the marble steps someplace in the Congress where he cried and he had lost the purity that he wanted for the boat. boundary waters.
4: However, we managed to get rid of logging and we got rid of motorboats on about more than 80% of the of the boundary waters and but, after the bill after excuse me after Ron walls and I had signed this agreement, which incidentally banned tobos, we uh we it was it was just a piece of paper that Ron walls and I had agreed to, and so we each had to go back to our constituencies and we had a meeting at Bud's house with the friends and and the Ron walls had to have a meeting in in the high school auditorium in Ely and also at Grand Marais. And at the at the meeting in Ely, after he dis- explained the compromise, somebody stood up and said, anybody who's in favor of this turkey, stand up. And of course, nobody did. And the same thing happened to him in, in, in Grand Marais, where he was shouted down. And so the press called us up and said, what are you guys going to do? And we said, nothing. Because we don't have a deal. And a few days later I got a call from David Lebidoff, who was an advisor to Wendy Anderson. He said, Come over to my office, and I did. And he said, Wendy thinks that this, this must be a pretty good compromise because nobody seems to like it. What would you think if we went with it? And that's how we ended up with the with the current Designation of motorized routes and non-motorized routes. He eventually adopted it and it passed in October of 1978, 45 years ago, almost to the day.
2: Wow, it's uh, quite a quite an epic story here, isn't it, boy? Thank you so much for that. We have uh, some some questions and comments in here, and I want to ask. To I'll start with Jan on this. You know, from from your perspective, Jan, what was the biggest surprise? of the the passage of the 1978 act? What was the biggest surprise in in that sort of journey there? And I'll have each of you respond to that question, but let's start with you, Jack. Well, it wasn't really a surprise, but it showed us what citizens could do um,
3: as a voice in the Congress. And I just wanted to get across the idea that what we did as citizens could not be duplicated now. The structure of our society in the political sense has so uh, been corrupted that a bunch of citizens can't make that kind of result for the nation.
2: Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jan. And Kevin, what was the biggest surprise for you?
0: I think that we got the 78 law passed into law, you know, you know, it, I think it's easy for us now looking back 45 years, you know, Oh yes, of course, you know, we were going to get a wilderness bill passed, but it was never assured that it could have been killed at any one of dozens of points of time. And we had people in the Congress, in our coalition, all helping to, to to try to get a, a good outcome. And we didn't get everything that we wanted in the 78 law or, or everything that's needed. And to some extent, we're, we're still trying to get the, the law fully implemented on the towboat issue that Wilderness Watch has active litigation now trying to finally get the Forest Service to uh, abide by the intent of Congress on the commercial towboats. But it it was it was almost miraculous that we were able to succeed as much as we did. I think my biggest surprise oh. is that, oh. that, that
4: Kevin doesn't look any different than he did back at. <laughs> and also, it's not a surprise, but I think well, the most heartwarming thing was the national support that this area is able to generate whenever it's in trouble. Sig Olson said every generation has to save it again. And that seems to be true now with the mining, the mining issues that we have, but the support never wanes for this, this beautiful and pristine area. And thank you for doing it. it. It's nice to have
2: something to celebrate these days. Well, it's, yeah, it really is a, a a celebration here and I, uh, looking at some of the, the the comments that are in here, Paul Sitz, uh, Erica's husband, uh, mentions that he has he's sitting in front of one of the posters from from back in the day. So so Jan, if you're looking for someone who maybe uh, have some of those art ar- ar- kinds of that
3: down that was Paul Sitz, who is so. widower of Erica Sitz, who is an environmental activist.
0: Yes, and and Paul uh was was uh, a key player in his own right as well Paul was out in washington helping with the lobbying as well as erica uh,
2: and you know what i hear you know, the this this conversation that we've had for the for the last hour here. You created a movement in, in, in so many ways. You know, I, I jotted down some of the notes here, picking up on something we just talked about. You used art as a way of connecting with people. You had that poster and connecting with people emotionally as well as intellectually. And, and you used a lot of different tools. You had uh, lawsuits, you had legislation, citizen action. You really used all these different tools to kind of get get over the finish line on October 21st of of seventy eight and recognizing that the, the work isn't isn't done. And you had with Bud Heinzelman, you had in addition to someone who had that integrity and in science, he also had that 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 charisma that, that really captivated people and including including representative uh, uh Phil Burton, who wasn't much of an environmentalist, but he received from those thousands of postcards and notes that you you generated, understood the political benefit and how you really Upstage the Alaska act that was also being considered at the, at the same time. So, and then you, you've also brought people there with the, those hearings. So to see the places is, is to love it. So you had all these different ways of of making it happen. And, you know, I'll, I'd like to have each of you kind of give, you know, some final, final reflections on things. And, you know, Jan, if you have some final thoughts for folks there.
3: Well, I tried to get my final thoughts about the state of the world in here in a little ways, but I think it is also telling that we were in a big fight and we resolved it. Not to everybody's satisfaction, but that's what life is about. And it should be about what political
2: and policy life is about as well. But I don't see that different times here, yes, uh, Kevin, some of your final thoughts
0: well i, I as Chuck mentioned uh, with the sig quote earlier, the you know uh the work is never completely done uh all of us who love the Boundary waters need to to remain as active and involved as we can and and we need to always be recruiting the the next and newer generations to to, to get involved because. Without a a real active and committed citizen base, the protections can get eroded over time. And we see that sometimes happening with other wildernesses across the country. One of my other, following up on Jan's comment too, one of the other things that strikes me is how much time Congress invested in this issue back in the day. We had House field hearings, two days of House field hearings in July of 78 or 77. We had two days of house hearings in the fall of '77. We there were there were markup sessions in the spring of '78. A- anyway, but now in Congress, a committee will deal with 25 bills in an hour and a half, without the 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 detailed information or knowledge that we were consciously trying to do at the time of building the record and getting the expert testimony and. And that, I, I see that as a, a a sad commentary on the way Congress works now.
2: Thank you, Kevin. And, and Chuck, some final thoughts? Well, it's important
4: to stay involved with the boundary waters and fight the issues that are going on there. I'm 84 years old. On October 1st in Minneapolis, it was 80, it was 90 degrees. I'm writing an apology to my great-grandson. We have got to get on top of this climate thing and there's no outrage. Uh, people just seem to think well it's happening you're trying to do we're trying to do some things but it's not the obvious things are not enough. Cars and coal-fired power plants of course. But we've got to go after agriculture. We've got to go after the banks for funding oil companies and coal companies, and we've got got to stop eating meat, actually. I mean, this is serious. And it's not just the boundary waters, but the boundary waters will never be the same after this. We're going to see huge fires. The water will change. The fishing is already changing because of water temperature. That's
3: where we need to put a lot of attention. Sorry to, to well, think okay. um, well.
2: Thank you. Thank you for those those thoughts there. And, and Jandy, did you want to add a, a final a final comment there too? Uh, okay.
3: The world wilderness comes from Henry David Thoreau, and it really is in wildness is the preservation of the world. And much get more people carry that in
2: their hearts and minds. Thank, thank you for that, Jan. Here and you know, uh, I want to again thank all of you. We we stand on your shoulders, uh, and it, it's a it's a movement, and it's um, a, a privilege and honor for for me to be part of that effort to carry carry the torch now and to hand that torch off to the the next generation when when that day comes here. And then um, we are a, a nonprofit, and we're carrying on the work that uh, uh, Chuck and Jan and, and Kevin. Um, started here. and so we have a give to the max day. It is November sixteenth. That's a coordinated day of philanthropic giving in Minnesota. Where and we have a match from from our um, from our current donors of one hundred seventy six thousand dollars that we hope to match with new donors on on give to the max day and uh, perhaps lapsed donors as well. So so we're trying to match that one hundred seventy six thousand dollars that current donors have have pledged. And you can participate in it, in it actually now by going to that give mn backslash vwcaw. So, so that is a way you can help us have the resources to continue on the work that that Chuck and Jan and and, and Kevin started in the nineteen seventies. Uh, again, I want to thank all of the, all of the, the our three panelists here, and I want to thank all the people that were involved back in the day. The you know, I, there are too many to mention there, but Dick Flint and Steve Snyder and Bill Cunningham and, and Eric and Paul Sitz and Darby Delson as I well. So, 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 so many people. And, and so it, it's a, it's a real movement and we understand that, that we're trying to create a movement, continue that movement. On, We have the privilege to work for Friends of the Boundary Waters, but you, you are equal partners and the most important partners in this in this effort. So thank you so much. We uh, are, are grateful to you and and you make the, our work
1: happen. And thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be covering a wide range of recreational topics this season from hiking trails to tips and tricks, and we'll meet some great personalities from the BWCA along the way, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Big Red Canoe is a presentation of Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, original music by Surge and the Swell. I'm Dave Meyer, and we'll see you next time on Big Red Canoe.
0: Thanks to the dedication of people from across the nation, we've made incredible victories in the fight against copper sulfide mining. For now, we've stopped this polluting industry from putting a shovel in the ground. But the threat is still there. That's why we've been working to pass a Prove-It-First bill in Minnesota. The law is simple. Before a copper sulfide mine in Minnesota can be permitted, the Prove-It-First law would require independent scientific proof that just one copper sulfide mine has operated in the United States for at least 10 years without causing pollution and that one mine has been closed for at least 10 years without polluting. It's common sense. Let's protect our clean water. Let's pass the Prove It First Bill.